Good morning, Valley Forge, King of Prussia and the greater Philadelphia area. This is We the People, the Constitution Matters, and we're coming to you over the freedom airways of WFYL on this fine Friday morning. I'm your host, Pastor David Whitney, and with me is my wonderful collaborator on this Friday morning, Phil Duffy, our constitutional instructor, and we're proposing what we're calling a thought experiment. What could be changed and altered with our current constitution that would improve it and bring into our federal government into a limited uh, structure where it does not tyrannically take over our lives and, and uh, take over our society as it has? So we're discussing the various elements uh, paralleling our current constitution, using obviously some phrases directly out of it that are still good and very usable, but altering it where need be in order to further restrict the federal government to keep this uh, mm, monster. We've often used the image of, uh, you know, uh, Dr. Frankenstein. People forget that Dr. Frankenstein was the, you know, the experimenter and the, the monster he created. He actually never gave it a name. It was just the monster. Well, uh, in a sense, our founders created a Frankenstein, a monster who's completely out of control. Obviously, Washington, D.C. is not limited by anything that our Constitution has to say. So how do we rein it in? How do we draw it back? And so our thought experiment here is to say, if we altered these aspects, if we proposed a, a new constitution, in a sense, uh, what would it take to keep this creation of we the people, which we need to remember, the federal government is a creation of we the people. It has no existence on, it, on its own. It has no powers on its own. It is completely the creature of we the people through our state governments, because literally the states are the ones that created the federal government and the states are the ones that were supposed to hold that federal government accountable to the standard of our constitution, but they have clearly failed to do so. So this morning we're going to be discussing these areas, uh, the powers of the states. And again, this really reflects our founders' vision that the states would be powerful, more powerful than the federal government, and therefore they would keep the federal government in check, keep the federal government from violating uh, those uh, those limits and those boundaries established in our Constitution. But then we also talk about the debts of uh, the government that exists now and what would a new government do with those debts, as well as what uh, is usually called the supremacy clause. In what way is the uh, federal government or the laws of the federal government or the Constitution, of the in what ways are those supreme vis-a-vis -vis the states. And then we'll discuss those which are required in our current constitution and this new proposal as well, those that uh, would hold accountable, and we want to put some teeth in it this time that really we're not there in the current constitution, teeth in that oath and uh, teeth such that those who violate the oath actually have to pay uh, a, a sizable uh, uh, cost for violating their oath of office, which clearly today that's not the case with anybody in, in the federal government violating their, their oath willy-nilly, and few of them even even a proposal for impeachment. Uh, but we'll talk about each of those. Phil, why don't you bring us your thoughts on uh, these sections of the proposed uh, thought, uh, thought experiment in this new constitution? Well, Article 8 of a new constitution corresponds to Article 4 of the current constitution, addressing how the states are to perform within the federation and the power of the states. Section 1 is challenging in that it states, full faith and credit shall be given in each state to the public acts, records, and judicial proceedings 
of every other state, and the Congress may, by general laws, prescribe the manner in which such acts, records, and proceedings shall be proved and the effect thereof. Now, the idea that full faith and credit shall be given in each state to the public acts, records, and judicial proceedings of every other state is legitimate. The United States are no mere customs union. The definition of a customs union is a group of countries that have agreed to charge the same import duties as each other and usually to allow free trade between themselves. The founding generation was interested in the full faith and credit idea, but certainly not in creating a single structure of federal law. Where to draw the line? Guidelines may be established, but the question invites subjective responses. Does that suggest that the Congress may, by general laws, prescribe the manner in which such acts, records, and proceedings shall be proved and the effect thereof? One of the downsides of creating a federation is that it encourages the creation of a federal bureaucracy. Separation of powers and checks and balances may inhibit that tendency a bit. But in the final analysis, all branches of a federation will tend to work in concert to expand their powers at the expense of the states that had created the bureaucracy. Section 1 should be modified to read, and the Council of States may, by general law, uh, laws, prescribe the manner in which such acts, records, and proceedings shall be proved, and the effect thereof. Section 2 of the current Constitution reads, the citizens of each state shall be entitled to all privileges and immunities of the citizens of several states. <clears throat> this wording should be retained. Section 2 continues. Persons charged in any state with treason, felony, or other crime who shall flee from justice and be found in another state shall, on demand of the executive authority of the state from which he fled, be delivered up to be removed to the state having jurisdiction of the crime. <clears throat> Likewise, this wording should be retained. Section 3 of the current Constitution begins, New states may be admitted by the Congress into this union, but no new state shall be formed or erected within the jurisdiction of any other state, nor any state be formed by the junction of two or more states or parts of states without the consent of the legislatures of the states concerned as well as of the Congress. Basic assumption in this language is that new states may be admitted by the Congress into this union. <clears throat> this assumption is fundamentally flawed. The current Constitution is a social contract among the states, not a contract between the states and the federal government. That contract establishes a set of rules that determine how the federal government is to operate. Today, a one-party federal government could admit Washington, D.C. and or Puerto Rico to become a state in the Federation and fundamentally change the political makeup of the federal government on a long-term basis. One might be tempted to take this power from Congress and place it with the Council of States. That does not go far enough in that the people are still cut out of the process. Under a new constitution, the preferred line language would be, <clears throat> new states may be admitted into this Federation only by amendment to this constitution. But no new state shall be formed or erected within the jurisdiction of any other state, nor any state be formed by the junction of two or more states or parts of states without the consent of the legislatures of the states concerned, as well as the Council of States. <clears throat> Notice the Union has been replaced with Federation. The Constitution of 1787 never created a Union, a term that was used to justify hostilities by the Northern states against the southern states that wish to uh, secede from that, that constitution. 
Constitution of 1787 created a new federation after that, which existed under the Articles of Confederation. <clears throat> that intent is made more explicit under a new constitution. Section 3 of the current constitution continues. The Congress shall have power to dispose of and make all needful rules and regulations respecting the territory uh, or other property belonging to the United States. And nothing in this constitution shall be so construed as to prejudice any claims to the United States or any particular state. Part of this is correct and part wrong. Correct part is that a property owner ought to have the power to dispose of and make all needful rules and regulations respecting the territory or other property belonging to the property owner. But substituting United States for property owner in this statement requires us to live in an imaginary world. If the property owner were John Doe, we would know specifically who owns the property. If the property owner were ABC Corporation, we would likewise know that the owners of ABC Corporation own the property in question. But who are the individuals who own property supposedly belonging to the United States? The people. And to say that the people own Yellowstone National Park and the White House is to say that no one owns these entities. This is a challenge for all public ownership. The people can use and dispose of these properties as they see fit. Under the current Constitution, the federal bureaucracy maintains the property and disposes of it as it sees fit. Any costs involved are not reimbursed from the personal wealth of the bureaucracy, but from the people, through taxation, or worse, inflation. There's a second problem. Language in the current Constitution implies that the federal government owns the property in the true sense, instead of holding the property in trust. Thus, when the federal government fraud fraudulently implies it has sufficient wealth that it can disperse uh, to what mo are most so often special interests, Many assume that the federal government is solvent, but the federal government can only hold property and trust for the people. And since the federal government is deeply in debt and insolvent according to generally accepted accounting principles, otherwise known as GAAP, one should question the prudence of allowing the federal government to own property. Federal insolvency was manifested on August 15, 1971, when President Nixon refused to meet the federal government's obligation to redeem the government's debt to foreign entities. Given that there is no perfect solution to the problem of public ownership of property, it makes sense to move its ownership back toward the people. The wording under consideration would then be modified too. <clears throat> the Council of State shall have power to dispose of and make all needful rules and regulations respecting the territory or other property entrusted by the people of the United States to the Council of States, and nothing in this Constitution shall be so construed as to prejudice any claims of the Council of States or of any particular state. Federal government would then be a lessee, capable of using the people's property, but subject to the specific lease agreement. Section 4 of the current Constitution reads, <clears throat> The United States shall guarantee to every state in its union a republican form of government and shall re protect them against invasion and on application of the legislature or the, uh, of the executive when the legislature cannot be con uh, convened against domestic violence. <clears throat> this describes the major responsibility of the United States to the states and the people, but should be modified to read. The United States shall guarantee to every state in this federation a Republican form of government and shall protect each of them against invasion by a foreign state or by individuals attempting to enter the United States illegally 
and on application to the legislature of the executive when the legislature cannot be convened against domestic violence. This clarifies that entry into the United States is limited to those who respect its laws. Let's look at Article 9, Deaths, Premacy, and Oaths. And first, let's talk about deaths. This article in the current Constitution begins, <clears throat> all deaths contracted and engagements entered into it before the adoption of this Constitution shall be as valid against the United States under this Constitution as under the current Constitution. Uh, as under the current confederation. <clears throat> this would be modified to read appropriately. All debts contracted and engagements entered into before the adoption of this constitution shall be as valid against the United States under this constitution as under the prior constitution. At first, this seems obvious in order to maintain the credit of the United States. Admittedly, there is an immense injustice potentially embedded in, in this wording. The purpose of a new constitution is to provide the people and their government with a clean slate founded on the principles of limited representative government. But this moment in time would be comparable to the occasion of Hamilton's three reports to Congress when he proposed the assumption of state debts that had arisen out of the War of Independence with Great Britain. Some states had been responsible in paying down their debt, while others were less so. Hamilton's socializing the debt imposed an injustice on the former. This raises the question of the boundaries that have been placed around the new constitution thought experiment. A new constitution is a radical departure from the constitution of 1787. Although it is consistent with the spirit of limited representative government that prevailed during the time of the founding generation, over two centuries, Americans have allowed, should have been their servant, the federal government, to become their master. That process has been fostered by an alternative spirit spirit of contention and artificial victimhood, which is ripping the American people apart. <clears throat> Concurrent with that spirit is a prevailing attitude that wealth ought to be redistributed from those who produced it to these alleged victims <clears throat> instead of the economic common sense of allowing Americans to produce wealth and distribute justly through the free, uh, the free market system. <clears throat> the political class is self-serve, continue. That increased the contention. It is the kind of short-term thinking that prevails among people enamored with political solutions. In the short term, it produces some winners at the expense of society as a whole. In the longer term, it produces civil war because society's aggregate wealth is diminished and more people seek to feed at the public trough. What has happened in Venezuela, once the wealthiest nation in South America, which certainly happened in the United States. <clears throat> the new constitution is admittedly an academic exercise, but in the real world, it will be necessary to create a transition plan to a new constitution. By its nature, that transition plan will be an order of magnitude more difficult to create than a plan for a new constitution. That plan should be used as an opportunity for considering the benefits that a new constitution would bring, given the implications are remaining on the current path to disaster. In any case, the transition plan should be used to ameliorate debt injustices such that existing debts could be fully honored. <clears throat> Let's look at the idea of supremacy of law. Current Constitution reads on this subject. <clears throat> this Constitution laws of the United States which shall be made in pursuance thereof and all treaties made 
or which shall be made under the authority of the United States, shall be the supreme law of the land. And the judges in every state shall be bound thereby. Anything in the Constitution or laws of any state to the contrary with notwithstanding, there are at least four structural problems with the current Constitution. First, silence on some significant issues. Second, ambiguities. Third, ill-defined terms. And fourth, the unspoken assumption that once the states had created the Federation, the federal government would make rules that dictated the states. <clears throat> the language in Section 3 concerning supremacy of law may illustrate all four uh, limitations. For example, it is clear that federal statutory law is subordinate to the Constitution. But as written, treaties that have been approved by the Senate appear to have equal standing with the Constitution itself. What if the Senate approves an international gun control treaty? That would certainly violate the spirit of the founding generations. But a case can be made that the Second Amendment would be abrogated by this treaty since the Constitution and treaties are considered equally weighted systems of law and ambiguity. There's no language in this section of the current Constitution to identify where the law of nations and the common law fit into the hierarchy of law. There is silence on a major issue evidenced by the question of Barack Obama's natural-born ability for the office of the president. But what is the purpose of the Constitution? It is the people's best choice to say what the law should be and what powers are to be granted and denied any government formed under a Constitution. <clears throat> The current Constitution is approximately 26 pages in length and has been subject to wide interpretation by the Supreme Court of the United States, leading to the phenomenon called legislating from the bench. This series on WFYL has argued for a multi-level constitutional structure to minimize the arbitrary influences of judges on the law. <clears throat> their job, according pardon me, their job along with juries is to consider the relationship between existing law and the case in front of them, not to make law. To assure that, the law must be clear, concise, and complete. The challenge is that constitutions at their top level are usually constrained to describing broad legal principles. A new constitution would be multi, multiple levels, allowing for the inclusion of detailed explanation of points made in the first level of a constitution. Past Supreme Court opinions toward the spirit of a new constitution could be summar summar uh, summarily described as well as the worst Supreme Court opinions, such as the John Roberts opinion in National Federation of Independent Business versus Sibelius, because the second level of constitutional uh, detail would be a part of the constitution. Judges would be compelled to consider this information prior to rendering an opinion. If a process were in place allowing sound constitutional decisions to be incorporated into that seven-level, second level, with less effort than the first-level amendment process, there would be less temptation to legislate from the bench. A multi-level constitution would rapidly diminish the need for individual judges to rely on the chaotic case precedent method currently in place. Based upon these thoughts, the current Constitution's statement about the supremacy of law would be rewritten. This Constitution is the supreme law of the land. Other systems of law may not contradict it, to include the laws of the United States, which shall be made in pursuance thereof, and all treaties made or which shall be made under the authority of the United States. When the Constitution is not specific, 
Judges may consider the law of nations for purposes of determining who is a citizen of the United States and for international purposes. Likewise, the common law may be referenced for domestic purpose. The judges in every state shall be bound thereby. Let's look at oaths. The final thought in this article is rewritten in this matter. All federal, state, and the state subordinate officials shall be bound by this oath. I do solemnly swear that I will faithfully execute the name of the office and will, to the best of my ability, preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution of the United States. The Council of States is empowered to specify penalties for any public official's violation of the Constitution of the United States and the process whereby such cases are to be tried before the Supreme Court of the states. This is a major improvement over comparable language in the current Constitution, which is silent on the implications of violating the Constitution. Instead of serving a real purpose, current oath-taking has become a matter of pure theater. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Amen to that, yeah. Most of the people who take an oath uh, do not consider what that oath actually means. Uh, is, uh, if we look at what our founders uh, were thinking of and what uh, was in their mind when they required the oath, they had this passage of the Old Testament in their, in their thinking. Ecclesiastes chapter 5 and verse 4. When thou vowest a vow unto God, defer not to pay it. For he, that is God, hath no pleasure in fools. Pay that which thou hast vowed. So God calls the oath takers in, in our form of government today who do not obey their oath and who just consider it a, you know, a little ceremony that you have to do before you take office. God calls them fools. That's right. They are fools. Goes on in Ecclesiastes 5, 5. Better it is that thou shouldest not vow than that thou shouldest vow and not pay. Suffer not thy mouth to cause thy flesh to sin, neither say thou before the angel that it was an error. Wherefore should God be angry at thy voice and destroy the work of thine hands? So God takes vows very seriously, even though, you know, those who uh, seem to hold office in, in uh, Washington, D.C. seem to consider vows very, you know, uh, just as a little ceremony that doesn't have much meaning whatsoever. Well, sorry for them. They're going to find out differently on Judgment Day that God has taken their vow very seriously. In fact, the, the, the verse there, 6, uh, Ecclesiastes 5, 6, points out that God sends an angel after every oath taker to record their violations of their oaths. So, you know, they might be in some smoke-filled back room uh, making some deal that is clearly a violation of the Constitution, the oath they swore to uphold and all that, that uh, they think they're getting away with it because oftentimes we, the public, do not know what our elected officials are doing. And then anything they're doing behind the scenes and closed room deals, things that are not uh, uh, publicly uh, declared, uh, well, we don't know and we may never know what they have done in, in violation of their oath of office, in violation of the very purpose for which civil government exists, to protect our God-given rights. So they may think they're getting away with it, but Ecclesiastes 5 says, uh, sorry, there was an angel there in that smoke-filled back room. You may not have seen him, but he was there and he was recording every single violation of the oath. And on Judgment Day, you're going to stand before the Lord Jesus Christ and have to give an account for every single violation. In fact, it says right there that um, God doesn't accept any excuses. You know, uh, when a person does, says, well, yeah, I, I took that oath, but, uh, you know, and he says in verse six, don't, don't say before the angel that it was an error. Well, you know, I took that oath, but I really didn't know what I was saying. I'd never read the constitution and didn't really understand what I was promising. 
and therefore, you know, you really can't hold me accountable. You know, God says, no, 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 you're going to be held accountable. In fact, the destruction of the work of your hands is what God promises to oath breakers. And uh, even greater than that, we know that there will be hell to pay for all eternity for many, many of these uh, in office who have sworn an oath to uphold the Constitution and are doing nothing of the kind. Uh, they're living and acting in violation of that oath on a, on a daily basis. Well, thank you, Phil. And, and I also appreciate the point you're making out about uh, federal property ownership. If we were following the original language of our current constitution, there would be no federal parks, there would be no federal lands, there would be no federal whatever, you know, uh, reserves or what, what have you. The only thing that would be federal property would be forts, magazines, arsenals, dockyards, and other needful buildings, not, you know, uh, uh, some forest lands or, or things of that nature. So restricting that property ownership back uh, to the original design, I, I fully agree with, and I agree with your idea that the federal government really should not own any property, and that should include Washington, D.C. Uh, if that remains the seat of the federal government, they shouldn't own that property at all, which I know our founders designed Washington, D.C. as a, a separate territory, not a state that would be independent politically because nobody in the District of Columbia could vote that if you were a resident of the District of Columbia, you could not vote in any federal election. You could not vote for a senator. You could not vote for House of Representatives because you had none. You could not vote for the president. So if you chose to reside in Washington, D.C., that was designed to be a politics-free city. <laughs> like Washington, D.C., a politics-free? Yeah. <laughs> we might laugh at our founders at, at their vision, but that's what their idea was. Because if there were uh, there were power that, that Washington, D.C. had over the federal government, it would have an advantage over all the other states. So, for example, if, uh, uh, you know, the, uh, the city of Washington was actually a state, Washington, D.C., and it's in control of the federal government's supply of low electricity, supply of water, supply of sewage, you know, what if the city decided we're going to turn off the, the sewage for, uh, the federal buildings, you know, all those federal buildings, they're not going to have any sewage because we just don't like what they're doing. And we're going to basically force their hand when all their toilets back up, eh, they'll cave in pretty quickly. We you know uh, the swamp will become pretty, pretty stinky swamp, a, a cesspool pretty quickly. But uh, that was the design to keep, keep the federal government free from the kind of uh, powerful political influences that happen when any local jurisdiction has uh, political power at the federal level, which all the states clearly do. So I agree. We need to get the federal government out of the business of owning any land as much as possible. Now, I guess forts, docks, magazines, you know, military installations. Yeah, I guess that is something that has to take place. But I think we ought to move, as you suggest, there in the direction of the federal government renting. The, they don't own the buildings that they utilize. They rent them from private owners. In fact, the reason I think this is a good design is it's what the design was of the Hebrew Republic that uh, uh, handed down by God at uh, Mount Sinai to Moses and the, the children of Israel, which, by the way, that vision of the Hebrew Republic, a highly decentralized uh, government, was uh, in the minds of our founders very clearly as they were crafting our constitutional republic. But in the Hebrew Republic, the uh, government both the local tribal government, you might say that they had 13 tribes, you could say the 13 states of, of the Israel uh, or Hebrew Republic, those 13 states, uh, any 
government functions did not happen on government-owned property. The government owned no property at all. All property was in the hands of family government. Families owned everything. And, uh, you know, the family could rent property to uh, anyone that they wanted to, to, to do any function. So I think there's a good idea to move back in that direction, saying that family government ought to own property and the federal government, and I think the state governments as well, uh, should be divested of that property that they have acquired. And that money should be used to basically go back to the pockets of the people uh, and reduce or reduce our taxation base based on uh, sale of those properties to uh, those who choose to, uh, you know, uh, rent to the federal government or rent to uh, the state government. So when we look at what's happened out west and, you know, we, we see the disaster that federal ownership of property has meant for so many of those western states where the federal government is in control of what the uh, uh, the ranchers are going to pay to graze their cattle because, oh, you're grazing on federal land. Well, wait a minute. The federal land belongs to who? As you pointed out, when you say the federal government owns something, who's uh, that's we the people. Oh, oh, we can't have this cattle rancher out here on federal lands because the federal government, wait a minute, no, 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 that land belongs to we the people. The federal government is not some independent entity, not some Frankenstein monster that it's become, and therefore we should not allow. Uh, the federal government to do that. And so particularly in the West, uh, oh, water issues and, and grazing rights and all those sorts of things are a huge problem because the federal government owns land. And we uh, contend that uh, according to our original constitution, that is never permissible. And certainly we would want to exclude that in this proposed new constitution to prevent federal government from owning uh, land, uh, except in extremely limited and restricted ways. Uh, so Full agreement on on that, that property ownership issue. The one where I, I take a little bit of a difference from you would be on the issue of debt and what we should do with the existing debt that we have under our current federal government. When we consider that existing debt, a huge amount of that debt is owed to an entity called the Federal Reserve, which is neither federal, no more federal than Federal Express. It's a private banking cartel. I call them banksters because they're the ultimate robbers. They're the ultimate criminals. Uh, you know, they put together. Uh, you take the you know some of the most infamous bank robbers, and these guys are far far beyond those bank robbers because they've stolen trillions of dollars from we the people over the past 110 uh, years of their existence here in these United States. And these bank robbers, uh, the Federal Reserve, have used the trick of supposedly creating money out of thin air, which, by the way, is not possible if you have a, a, a righteous and just system of exchange and currency, because the only thing that is of value and the only way to store that value is that you created some good or you offered some service in exchange for something that was going to be the store of the value of that work that you accomplished. It may sound all complicated, but think about it this way. If you went out and you labored for a day, eight-hour day of work, and you agreed at the end of that day, you were going to receive this silver coin that in, in days gone by was called a dollar. <laughs> Today, we think of the paper things as a dollar. Now, there was a day when a silver coin, a silver dollar, a dollar a day was the old phrase. you know. And with that dollar a day, in the day, you know, back before the inflation that has been caused by the Federal Reserve, you could take that dollar and you could pay 
for all of the expenses you needed for that day for your family. Now, average family of four or five will be able to buy the food they need, put the roof over their head, transportation, everything they needed could be based on a dollar a day. Now, that dollar a day has been so greatly uh, inflated that it's no longer worth anything except about three cents on the dollar since 1913. That difference, the 97% of the value of uh, our, what was our, our solid dollar, 97% has been stolen specifically by the Federal Reserve. So the debt that we owe to the Federal Reserve, I believe, is illegal. They have stolen it from us for 110 years. And I think a useful uh, uh, job for our military would not be running around the world, you know, getting involved in the Ukraine or Israel. That's really somebody else's business. And uh, we may, uh, you know, have opinions about it, but that's not the job of our government. Our government is to protect our God-given rights. And if our military were doing something really useful in the world, they would go after these criminals, the cabal that run the, and own the Federal Reserve that have robbed the wealth of Americans to the tune of 97%. So if we were to go repatriate, repatriate that which they have stolen from us, firstly, and secondly, we were to cancel all the supposed debt that we owe to them because we don't owe them anything. When they created fiat currency out of thin air, they did no work. There was no work done by them. In fact, we did all the work if, they, if it actually involved printing a you know, dollar bill or a hundred dollar bill. It was our printing presses that we, the taxpayers paid for it, our paper and our ink and all the thing involved. And in, in pr- if we printed it, or even if we used computers for, you know, uh, uh, digits and so forth, all of that means we, the people actually paid for the production of what they stole from us. So they paid nothing. They did no work. And therefore, it's pure theft. And everything that supposedly we owe to the Federal Reserve should be canceled. All of those criminals should be rounded up by our military, uh, put in jail forever and until uh, they're, they're dead. And uh, we have nothing that we owe to them. Now, that's not to say that all of our, our, uh, our indebtedness should be canceled in that same way, because obviously... And we owe uh, money to other investors around the world, and uh, huge, uh, huge loans have been made to our country by other countries, and we'd be in rightly in very big trouble with countries like China if we repudiated our debt with them and refused to pay. They would certainly be uh, sending missiles our way and other other things to destroy us, and and uh, you know basically get their their pound of flesh back uh, for the money that they lent to us. So there are entities that are legitimate. And even though the process by which that debt was created was illegitimate, but we entered into a contract with a legitimate government or in legitimate investors, individuals who actually did loan us something of value. That is, it cost them work. It cost them investment. Uh, it wasn't a freebie like it was with the Federal Reserve creating money out of thin air. There was something of actual value that was exchanged in terms of uh, the loans that, that were created. Uh, you know, the U.S. Treasury bonds and so forth. So basically have to divide this into two groups. The, the legitimate debts that we would say, yes, are to be paid and the illegitimate debts uh, to the Federal Reserve. And uh, obviously we've talked about this idea already that one of the things we would be committed to is the complete abolition of the Federal Reserve under, under a new government that would come uh, into existence from this constitution. And uh, just to make another note, I fully agree with you with the hierarchy of law idea that we need a, a clear definition. Where do, do things stand in terms of the law of nations? And, and uh, 
what are those, and much of this may wind up being at the uh, secondary level of um, uh, definitions and identification of where do we find the law of nations and uh, what, what, uh, what are the principles that need to be understood there. So uh, great job. Thank you again, Phil, for uh, your thoughts. Well, uh, let me react to, to some of your, your comments um, about the oath takers. Uh, that was fascinating. Uh, and I like the idea that they're fools. Uh, I'd like to add to that that the ship of state is indeed a ship of fools. Um, secondly, um, we don't know what our public officials did to violate the Constitution. And there are two components to that. The first is self-serving overclassification of information by public organizations dedicated to spying on the people. You know, like NSA, uh, just... just <laughs> It goes on and on. Three letters, just put together any three letters, and you come up with another organization that spies on the people. So uh, that's that's one part of it. The second part is the magnitude of the federal legislation and regulation scope, if you will, uh, way, way beyond the original intent of the Constitution of the United States. Uh, some have estimated it to be 90% unconstitutional. If you look at the uh, uh, the federal registry and and so forth. Uh, you know the amount of law and regulation that impacts is probably ninety percent of it is unconstitutional. So uh, there there are those those two factors that uh, work against us. And I think that one of the things that we've done in this series is to identify the structural um, mechanisms for eliminating those kinds of problems. Now uh, on debt, we're in agreement. Uh, I mentioned something about a transition phase, and, and we really have, have talked very, very little about the transition phase that should precede a going to a new constitution. Um, <clears throat> it is a subject that is an order of magnitude uh, larger than the thought experiment that we've conducted here. They, the problem is that if we get too deeply into that, you know, we never cover the basic subjects. And so we've created this kind of ideal world in which the transition phase has been successfully completed. And we're now into this new world where we can create a new clean slate, a new constitution. Well, that's, you and I know that's artificial. And you're right in bringing, bringing that up as a major issue. Let me offer one principle that I think we should apply in that transition phase. And that is that uh, all debt should be analyzed to determine if fraud is involved. You you identify the classic example of fraud. You know, creating debt uh, with artificial uh, uh, counterfeited money, basically that's the purpose of the Federal Reserve System. That's fraud. No question about it. Okay, so I don't think we're responsible for repaying any of that debt. No, if it's fraudulent. Now, some people are going to be hurt by that because they believe that... Uh, this was this was true debt. I'm really very sorry about that, but you had a responsibility to understand your constitution. You know, you fail to do that, and there are costs involved in that. There will be a lot of pain to be shared in this transition period. There is no question about that. The alternative is to go down the same road we're on, and as Einstein was supposed to have said, he didn't say it uh, actually, but. Uh, you know, doing the same thing over and over again and expecting a different outcome is insanity. We know where this leads to. I mean, yes, the transition phase is going to be very painful, no question about it, but at least it will be reasonably fair. 
and it leads to a better world. But on the other hand, if we don't go down that road, we know that we're going down the road to surfing. Mm-hmm. Well said. And, and indeed, we are already you know, well down that road to serfdom. I guess the average uh, American family, if you evaluate their uh, tax freedom day, that is the first day of the year where they actually get to begin working for themselves, for their family. And, and you know, the money coming in is not going to a federal or state government or a local government or you know, taxes like property tax, all the taxes that a, you know average family pays is in, in July, you know, by about July 4th. So they spend about half the year as tax serfs. Yes, they do have some freedom. They're not complete slaves. Uh, not 100% of their labor is taken, but more than 50% of their labor or the fruit of their labor is taken by the government, federal, state, and local. And that's that's egregious. That is really, really uh, violative. And, and I appreciate your point about the transition phase, and it, it will be difficult, but I know that we can never even get to the transition phase until we persuade a vast majority of Americans that the system we're we're working with right now is broken and it's broken to a point where we're not going to repair it with, you know, monkey around with uh, changing this bolt or that bolt or, you know, we need a overhaul, wholesale overhaul. And, and so that, that transition is going to require a groundswell of support uh, for a, an alteration of the system. And, you know, I see the biggest... Uh, particularly living in Maryland, I see the biggest opponents to this change of system would be the employees of the federal government. Because if they look at what we're talking about and what we're proposing, quite clearly, there's a whole lot of the agencies that employ thousands. And some of those are getting, you know, six-figure incomes. They're getting very wealthy off the back of the rest of America. And many of those, you know, they're employed in, and they live in my area and they live in Northern Virginia. Some of the wealthiest counties in America are those surrounding Washington, D.C., because as you say, all these three letter agencies that exist and all, they pay very lavishly uh, by analysis when you compare with the private sector and what the private sector is offering with what the federal sector. Uh, there's a very, it's not any sacrifice on their part. They're actually often making out better in uh, working for the federal government than it would be doing a similar job in the private sector. So these people are going to be the ones who are dragging their heels every inch of the way because they don't want to lose the good life that they're enjoying right now. And I don't know the best way to appeal to them. I mean, I I could uh, appeal to their conscience that what they're doing as employees of the NSA, for example, is a violation of the Constitution. And if they're swearing an oath to the Constitution, they're one day going to stand before their maker they're going to have to give an account. Well, wait a minute. You took this oath, but you're doing a violation. What do you do? And you, your whole income was, and you went on in a career of 35 years and you continue, you know, you're going to have to answer on judgment day for doing that. So I know that I might appeal to that, but uh, perhaps there's uh, some other effective ways that we could appeal to those who are part of the system and therefore actually part of the problem. Perhaps if they have children, they might uh, think about what the future for their children will look like if the current system doesn't change. In other words, if we stay in this uh, debt-ridden uh, hyperinflation, heading towards hyperinflation, or may- maybe now at 15% inflation, but you know, if this inflation hits 1,000% per year, I think everybody's going to wake up and say, oh, we've got a serious problem here. We-, we can't go on as we are. Things need to change. So don't know exactly the, the, all the, all the uh, ways in which to persuade folks, but I do agree that that transition phase is going to be difficult. 
And perhaps it's going to take some extreme crisis to actually bring people to a point of willing to say, yes, this system is broken beyond repair. We've got to change it, even though it may mean the end of my career at the NSA or the FBI or whatever other three-letter agency employs uh, too many people here in the Washington, D.C. area. Well, let me uh, address the issue about the the uh, uh, the debt uh, right now. If we if we look at the the overall acknowledged debt, we're talking about a quarter of a million dollars per household. Okay, now fifty percent basically pay nothing on the interest, and uh, you know if you just go under the rules of the current system, you know the the people who are paying for things would not pay two hundred and fifty thousand. To remove the debt would be a, uh, half a million dollars. Okay, now these are rough figures, but trust me, if you look at this as only the acknowledged debt, and the acknowledged debt, I believe, is about maybe one third of the actual debt, according to generally accepted accounting principles. Take that million, uh, half a million dollars, and you're basically up to about a million and a half already. Wow. For the producers, for the producers, in order to become solvent. Wow. Then on an ongoing basis. No, it's impossible. It is, yeah. It's absolutely impossible. Now because the average so the average American doesn't have that money in their bank account. (laughs) You know, they couldn't if if today they had to pay that, they couldn't do it. It's impossible for it's it's impossible. Mm -hmm. It's impossible. And there are things that are happening in the financial area right now in in tandem with political uh, things that we're talking about that could lead to that crisis that you were talking about. I think one of the main things that we need to to understand about this exercise is that you can't just walk out your door having heard these these uh, uh, commentaries and say, okay, let's do this. Uh-uh, it's not going to happen that way. We're going to have to face a crisis. Now, I don't know whether the crisis is with another COVID-19 kind of uh, lockdown or whether it's it's the financial system and the dollar finally breaking, uh, or whether it's something else. I mean, there are just a lot of things out there that could, could break very, very badly. But the point is, this exercise has a purpose, and that is to prepare us for the crisis that we know that is coming. And the important part of this is that you know, we're not going to change bureaucracy. We should not depend on that. There will be some, some uh, people who listen to their conscience, who switch from government into uh, the productive part of the, the economy. But for the most part, they are not going to come. And if you if you look at the way issues like this are finally resolved, you know it might take something like uh, a general strike, a general strike of the producers who say, enough's enough. We're not going to do this anymore. We're not going to feed this, this, uh, uh, you know, this pathogen that is in- infecting our society. Yeah, uh, the monster created by Dr. Frankenstein got out of his control and began to make demands of Dr. Frankenstein, like, you must make me a wife. And Frankenstein, after he saw the kind of problems he was already having with the monster, refused to provide him a wife. And uh, that made the monster even more angry and all kinds of problems ensued. So, yes, we're, we're going to have a, a difficult time. So I think it's it, it, the beast is not going to die willingly. And uh, that's that's the case, I, I think, with all these totalitarian regimes, uh, which which develop, and it's the case, I think, with our system. And I think there's a you know number of factors that are very dangerous in, in all of this. 
And part of that is that um, we know that the people who control and own the Federal Reserve are very powerful. They've got an enormous amount of wealth and they're, they're bloodthirsty. They don't want anyone to stand in their way. Uh, we have history to prove that. The one president that actually stood up the Federal Reserve, so far there's only been one president that actually stood up to the Federal Reserve and began printing notes, $5 notes, that were called treasury notes. That is, the federal treasury was issuing these, and they were fiat currency. The, the federal government was creating these out of thin air, so it was, not, it was not something that was actually backed by gold and silver. It was just fiat currency created out of thin air. Uh, and so when he was doing that, he was depriving the Federal Reserve of their enormous wealth because every time they print a bill, whether it's a $5 bill or a $100 bill, they're loaning that bill to the, the, the Federal Treasury, charging interest on something that costs them nothing. And so uh, as our and, and the reason why we have to keep raising the debt ceiling, and that's, that's a part of this fiat currency system, because we cannot pay back what we've already borrowed without borrowing more. And so it's an endless downward spiral of debt and continuing indebtedness. So very shortly, within a week after this president began to print treasury notes, his executive order, he was assassinated in Dallas, Texas. And I, there's other reasons his assassination may have taken place. Uh, you know, there's other people who were upset with him for wanting to get out of Vietnam and wanting to destroy the CIA. And so there was a number of other enemies he had uh, made. But one of the enemies he clearly made was the Federal Reserve. And they very quickly took him out. So I would say, any, you know, it's going to have to be a, a disaster of such proportions that we see there is no other way out of this. And I, I think financially, it's going to take a, a crash of the dollar uh, to really bring about the, the, the pain where people are willing to say, this system cannot continue the way it is. Uh, because what, what we have now is that Americans, like you're pointing out, you know, you know more than a million dollars in debt, each family, Americans have been made debt slaves to the owners of the Federal Reserve. So everybody today is decrying slavery. Oh, what a horrible thing, chattel slavery, blah, blah, blah. Well, yeah, it was, but we're being made debt slaves today to an unseen because we don't know who the true owners of the Federal Reserve, they keep their identity clearly hidden because they don't want anybody coming after them. Uh, the crime that they've committed, they don't want to ever be held accountable for, but they have clearly made the American people their slaves, in this case, debt slaves. Well, uh, you, you mentioned uh, the, the difficulty, the crisis that, that undoubtedly has to occur before more people will start to come to their senses. Um, I don't want to come across as wanting violence. I think that, you know, Karl Marx and, and Engels almost loved the idea of violence because it would achieve their goal. I'm at the opposite end of the extreme. I, I love peace. And uh, <clears throat> what I'm, I'm hoping is that through education, more people will move away from the current road, which does, in fact, lead to violence. All history confirms that. I mean, if we if we wish to ignore the lessons of history, put our hand, heads in the sand, so to speak, uh, then we can proceed, you know, as if everything is okay until suddenly everything will not be okay. But the point is that if you learn the lesson of history, you learn that you, know, you simply can't operate a society by stealing from those who produce and giving to those who don't. <laughs> That's right. Because eventually the producers wake up and say, wait a minute, this isn't a good deal for us. What are we doing? You know, I think it was AOC who proposed a ridiculous uh, tax level for certain certain uh, workers or certain people. 
that would be like 95%. Wait a minute, 95% of their income was going to be stolen by the... Yeah, that was her proposal. Now, she's a stinking communist and, you know, should be rejected by the people of New York. And, uh, you know, I think her citizenship should be taken for being a communist, but that's my opinion. Uh, but that's the that's their attitude. Their attitude is you have no right to have money. You're, you are a slave. And what communism essentially is, is you're a slave to the government. You need to work and the government will give you universal basic income, whatever it deems you need uh, and, you know, whatever it wants you to have. And you're not going to have anything that you want, just what the government wants you to have. That, that's the communist idea. But it's not far from the debt slavery idea uh, of the Federal Reserve, where it's like uh, you're a slave of the Federal Reserve who's hidden and they're in control of your life and your wealth. And they're going to steal from you and steal from your children and your grandchildren on and on and on it goes. But uh, yeah, we need to repudiate that. And that needs to be a change in the thinking of the ideas of the American people, that we reject socialism, we reject communism, said, no, 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 everybody ought to be able to keep the fruit of their own labor because God commands thou shalt not steal. But when we, yep. go ahead. No, I, th I think that's a very good example. And then it's interesting that it, that it comes out of New York. AOC, of course, representative from New York. Uh, and, you know, going back to your idea about those people who violate oaths, uh, they're fools. But the people of... New York, who continue to uh, send her to Congress, are also involved in her foolery, and they're starting. They're starting to see what is happening as a result of that. Uh, the good people, the producers, are are leaving. Uh, are leaving New York. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they recognize it's not a place where uh, their work is actually going to be protected. So one of our God-given rights is that we get to keep the fruit of our labors, unless we've entered an agreement. Uh, to pay portion of that in taxes. That's why taxation without representation was such an evil thing that our founders identified. Uh, but we, the people, should understand these principles. That's really why we exist here at We the People, the Constitution Matters, because we recognize until there's a grand swell of understanding of these principles, founding principles of our country, the founding principles of a just system of law and government, until we adopt these as a, as a majority here in these United States, we're not going to see the return to sanity, and the return to the protection of our God-given rights that we need. So join us next Friday morning, 8 a.m. We the people, the Constitution matters. Also, check out our website, 1180WFYL. Click the podcast button all the way at the bottom as we the people, the Constitution matters. And it does, because without it, we lose our liberty. <laughs>